America be America again by Langston Hughes. Let America be America again. Let it be the dream it used to be. Let it be the pioneer on the plain seeking a home where he himself is free. America never was America to me. Let America be the dream the dreamers dreamed. Let it be that great strong land of love where never kings connive nor tyrants scheme that any man be crushed by one above. It never was America to me. Oh, let my land be a land where liberty is crowned with no false patriotic wreath but opportunity is real and life is free. Equality is in the air we breathe. There's never been equality for me, nor freedom in this homeland of the free. Say, who are you that mumbles in the dark? And who are you that draws your veil across the stars? I am the poor white fooled and pushed apart. I am the Negro bearing slavery scars. I am the red man driven from the land. I am the immigrant clutching the hope I seek and finding only the same old stupid plan of dog-eat-dog dog, of mighty crush the weak. I am the young man full of strength and hope, tangled in that ancient endless chain of profit, power, gain, of grab the land, of grab the gold, of grab the ways of satisfying need, of work the men, of take the pay, of owning everything for one's own greed. I am the farmer, bondsman to the soil. I am the worker, sold to the machine. I am the Negro, servant to you all. I am the people, humble, hungry, mean, hungry yet today, despite the dream, beaten yet today. Oh, pioneers, I am the man who never got ahead, the poorest worker, bartered through the years. Yet I'm the one who dreamt our basic dream in the old world while still a serf of kings who dreamt a dream so strong, so brave, so true that even yet its mighty daring sings in every brick and stone and every furrow turned that's made America the land it has become. Oh, I'm the man who sailed those early seas in search of what I meant to be my home, for I'm the one who left dark Ireland's shore and Poland's plain and England's grassy lee and torn from black Africa's strand I came to build a homeland of the free. The free? Who said the free? Not me. Surely not me. The millions on relief today. The millions shot down when we strike. The millions who have nothing for our pay. For all the dreams we've dreamed and all the songs we've sung and all the hopes we've held and all the flags we've hung, the millions who have nothing for our pay except the dream that's almost dead today. Oh, let America be America again, the land that never has been yet and yet must be, the land where every man is free, the land that's mine, the poor man's, Indians, Negroes, me who made America, whose sweat and blood, whose faith and pain, whose hand at the foundry, whose plow in the rain must bring back our mighty dream again. Sure, call me any ugly name you choose. The steel of freedom does not stain. 
From those who live like leeches on the people's lives, we must take back our land again. America, oh yes, I say it plain, America never was America to me. And yet I swear this oath, America will be. Out of the rack and ruin of our gangster death, the rape and rot of graft and stealth and lies, we the people must redeem the land, the mines, the plants, the rivers, the mountains and the endless plain, all, all a stretch of these great green states and make America again. And there you have it, the eternal message, the heart and soul of America and of every liberty-loving people. From those who live like leeches on the people's lives, we must take back and redeem the land and make America again. That message helps us launch this new year of 2024 here on Here We Stand, the voice of the Republic of Canada. I'm your regular host, Kevin Annett, Eagle Strong Voice. It's January the 7th. Well, today we're beginning the 10th year of our broadcasting here on Here We Stand and the 10th year of our existence as the Sovereign Republic of Canada. It's also the 26th year of our movement to stop genocidal and child-killing churches and governments. And over those long years, we have started a revolution, first across Canada and then the world, a movement that's giving people the chance to not only resist the global corporatocracy and its tyranny, but to reclaim their world and replace the existing fallen system. In that struggle, we've exposed genocide in Canada and forced a pope, a monarch, and many lesser criminals from office. But also in the course of that struggle, we've learned an important lesson through much struggle and pain. The lesson is that for every hundred people attacking the individual scales of a deadly monster, there are only a handful who are striking at the heart of that beast. So why is this? Well, from our experience, it's because by and large, people are not yet ready to take responsibility for themselves and the world. An example, of course, is our experience of the common law Republic assemblies across Canada during the years 2020 to 2022 in response to the COVID tyranny. Time and again, people got to the point where they were willing to form assemblies, debate and pass local laws, but then they got cold feet when it came to enforce it and say, no, we are the authority. And that risk held many people back. The fact is, folks, that, that we're all being raised as dependencies, as dependent slaves. And by and large, we haven't had to shed the dependent thinking and practice that goes along with that comfy slavery. So many people look to others, to so-called white hats, maybe to that billionaire oligarch, Donnie Trump, maybe to the right knowledge of a legal system in order to secure their cozy position within what's really a corrupted, blood-soaked system that's right now slaughtering the innocent as we speak. People like that believe that liberty can be won with a few adjustments and right measures. Not enough of us have suffered and lost enough to have matured and learned that our struggle will not be won in a week or a year or a century. It's an ongoing fight to the death with an entire global system. It's a fight our children and grandchildren will be waging, but they have to wage it knowing the nature of what they're fighting. And the other thing, of course, we're fighting is that shadow within each of us that has given rise to that system and that feeds it every day. We are complicit. We are not simply victims being attacked. We have created this system, and it's up to us to dismantle it. 
So in that battle, our enemy isn't the latest hand-puppet figurehead like a prime minister, a president, a king, or a pope, or a Jeffrey Epstein. Our enemy is the thing that spawned them, a thing in which we have all been and are complicit. As it says in the book of Ephesians, we fight not against flesh and blood, but against the ruling powers, the princes of darkness, and the principal spiritual evil that lives in the high places. Well, those words in Greek, the expression of what we fight, fight is RKK exousia, which means the principalities and powers, the invisible force that controls the physical world and its people. But it's invisible, not because it's some strange mystical existence, but only because it lies so close to each one of us. We can't see it because we're so much a part of it. That's good news and bad news. Because even as its group mind controls us without us even knowing it, once we become conscious of our part in that mind, we can master it. That's what General Sun Tzu says and means in The Art of War when he writes, whoever controls the chi of a situation will defeat any enemy no matter how large they are. The chi, the essential energy, the overmind, the controlling power that we can't normally see. We've proven that time again in practice. We've proved it in Canada when a few dozen of us forced the truth of genocide into the open, when thousands asking for something from the system in a protest couldn't have done the same thing. And so today on the show, we're going to go deeper into these matters, personal, political, spiritual, in order to equip you with the tools of how to fight our enemy and overcome it on every front. Well, this fall, we showed you how to begin that process once again through another common law court case that was convened on the west coast of Canada between September 25th, when the indictments were sent out, and the trial concluded on November 20th. The trial was involving the murder of six local activists, all of them known to me, people like William Coombs and Harriet Nahani, indigenous survivors of the Christian death camps, the so-called residential schools. It also involved my targeted destruction, and you can see all of the details of that on our website, murderbydecree.com, under ITCCS Updates. Go there and look at the last two or three postings. It has the complete case of, you know, that, cam, that uh, lawsuit that was brought. And the consequence of that case is very important because one of the main defendants, Charles Mountbatten-Windsor, is on the point now of abdicating after he was convicted once again. It's like a repeat of when we forced Pope Benedict out of office in 2013. And the larger case, however, is, isn't simply that these people in high office now stand under lawful conviction and can be arrested by any of us. The point is these institutions have lost the right to operate, as they should. They're repugnant, blood-soaked institutions. And the repercussions of simply naming these crimes in public has meant that new things have opened up. People within that system are coming forward now. Several of the people who were convicted have come forward to want to strike a deal to avoid conviction, and they're naming new names. They're also mentioning that Charles Mountbatten, Windsor, Prime Minister Justin Trudeau, and others are complicit in the recent murder of 10 Cree people in Saskatchewan to secure the diamond mining rights to Rio Tinto, that crown corporation. All of these things are coming in now in the wake of this lawsuit. So the point is, folks, it's not a matter of arresting individuals. We have to arrest and disestablish their system. And that's why the Indigenous elders across Canada issued once again this fall a banishment and reclamation orders against the Catholic, the Anglican, the United Churches of Canada, 
Those churches don't have the right to operate. They murdered over 60,000 indigenous children. We have the legal right and obligation to seize those properties. And also Section 61 of the Magna Carta gives us the right to do the same thing. And when the crown and or the king or anyone has violated the rights of the people, everything in the crown territory can be seized, property, land, assets of the so-called crown. It's all ours. We can do it lawfully. The question is now, will we act and reclaim it? Most people seem incapable of doing so. Simple reason is because they're not ready yet. They're raw recruits. Many of the people involved in these campaigns have only, quote, awoken since 2020. But there's a 30-, 40-year campaign before that that has molded the minds and experiences of many of us. We've learned through battle, and that's, in fact, the only way you learn, through confronting an enemy, not by talking about it, not by avoiding risk, but by engaging with the enemy. Unfortunately, when you don't do that, you're still a prisoner in the mind of that enemy. And no better example of that is whenever we call an action at churches, nobody comes out. People are afraid to confront these churches because they've been brainwashed to think that churches have something to do with this invisible thing called God, and they might get in trouble if they confront the churches. Well, prove me long, wrong, folks. Come out to the next church action. And don't forget that these are recurring actions every Sunday. Write to us, Republic National Council at ProtonMail.com. We are actively seizing the church properties. We banish them from our territories. We're doing this in alliance with indigenous elders. And we have also ordered the city councils across Canada to nullify the tax exemptions and licensing for these churches, lest they, the governments, be charged with complicity of the crimes of the churches. So all of that can be learned at murderbydecree.com under ITCCS updates. Educate yourself. Mostly, however, learn through practice how to overcome these people. Nothing changes unless we take these actions. And the best quote I love for that is from William Coombs himself. After we began occupying churches in 2007 and 8 in Vancouver, William said, occupying that church with all of you and sticking it to those priests did more for me than 20 years of counseling. I'm not afraid of those bastards anymore. That's how we change. And in that regard, I want to flag one of my books, and you can see them all at Amazon.com under Kevin Annett, A-N-N-E-D-T. And go to... Uh, the Manual for Whistleblowers and Hellraisers. It's called Truth Teller's Shield. Go especially to page 100, chapter 5, because it talks about transformation that happens when we engage in one battle. In fact, it leads to another very quickly. And um, you become a veteran by going through the battle. It's not something that can be taught. You've got to acquire it through that personal experience. It begins, of course, with the personal question. Is our vision and then of a new society and a new reality real for us, or is it just another nice idea? What will you risk and sacrifice to achieve it? You can only know that in practice. And I remember when Dad told my father, Bill, uh, told me about his experience in the Korean War as a raw recruit. Everyone around him was ducking to avoid the bullets. And it's only when they were their friend was killed or they were threatened directly by an assault that they fought back. All of them wanted to fight without getting hurt, and that's an illusion. That's what all of most of you listening to the show today, you're willing to take certain actions, but if there's risk and you might be hurt or lose something, you back off. As long as you're like that, they've won. Today on the show, we're going to show you how to build up that strength by preparing you to take action, because that's the only way you're going to shed your fear and your illusions. Today on the show, we're going to be doing a number of things about that. 
two important reflections. One about the quote you heard earlier from Sun Tzu, the nature of chi. What's the nature of a struggle? What are we really engaged with? It's kind of a spiritual reflection, although I don't like to make a distinction between the material and the spiritual. It's all one reality, but we don't see a lot of it because we're too assimilated into it. We have to step back and recover our minds and go through the fire of battle in order to learn who we really are and what really what we're in. The Another reflection uh, today will be from an experience I had in a Guatemalan refugee camp with the Mayan people. Looking what it means among them to have to be a leader. And I remember uh, one of the Mayan elders, he was a very poor man, as all of them were there. He said, the true leader you never see, because he is the poorest among you. He spends his life working for the people and never thinks about himself. He doesn't run away or take care of himself or acquire a lot of fame or money. He just serves the people all the time. And that's, in fact, our nature as indigenous people, the three great laws of the natural law. No one has a right to any more of the earth than anyone else any more of its wealth or anything. No one has any authority over anyone else, and we're meant to share creation equally and in harmony, take care of one another. Those three basic laws enunciated in the actual Jubilee laws, which, and if you see our common law training manual right on the front cover, you see the Liberty Bell, the American Revolution. It's actually a quote from Leviticus 25.10, proclaim liberty to all the people. And those words, proclaim liberty in Hebrew, actually means make a release, physically break the chains. And that's, in fact, exactly what we do all the time. So that is the outline of the show today. Remember that the events that you need to be uh, involved in, January 15th, the Monday, January 15th, the anniversary of the founding of the Republic, we'll be doing flag raisings and reclamation actions all over the country and in other countries in solidarity. We raise the flag, we go into public buildings or churches and other, or the land itself and reclaim it and start operating on it under a new sovereign jurisdiction, the Republic of Canada. But there's a threefold full process in that. Take out citizenship, separate from the old allegiance to the so-called crown and the corrupt system. And then form cells, which lead to Republic assemblies and courts. In other words, it's a grassroots reclamation process. We first have to know the nature of what we're in in order to separate from any allegiance to it. And that's the theme of today's show, to prepare us for taking power. And that's really something, as I've been saying, is something you learn through practice. We have a treasure trove of experience. The books we're going to be drawn on, you can see all of them at murderbydecree.com and on, in amazon.com under Kevin Annett. But some of the ones that we'll be talking about today, Establishing Liberty, The Case for Canada. That's the book, The Program and the Vision of the Republic of Canada. Truth Teller Shield, a manual for whistleblowers and hellraisers. And of course, Establishing Liberty, Establishing the Reign of Natural Liberty, a common law training manual. That, in fact, is one of the most popularly read books all over the world now. It's translated in the nine languages. We do common law training workshops online to to teach you that. We're going to have another one coming up very soon. So to get involved in those online workshops, to help form local cells and assemblies, to take back the nation and be involved in these reclamation actions, occupation and seizure of these criminal Catholic, Anglican and United churches that have now been banished from our territories. To get involved in all of that, write Republic National Council at ProtonMail.com. 
that's the show for today and actually the introduction to the show for today. You're now going to hear more of the details of what we've been talking about. This is Kevin Annett, Eagle Strong Voice. Enjoy the show. Learn from it. Take action. We'll be back soon. I thank you. Hello, this is Kevin Annett. My lecture today is entitled The Purpose and Nature of Our Struggle. This is for those listening who have moved from theory and discussion to action. We begin with a quote from Sun Tzu in The Art of War. Whoever grasps and holds onto the essential energy, or chi, of a situation will control the outcome of any battle and the fate of any opponent, no matter how powerful they are. And from the book of Corinthians, what is nothing has been chosen to bring to nothing all the things that are. Imagine for a moment the present global tyranny not simply as a visible system of corporatocracy, violence, and corruption, but as a vast energy transfer, sucking the vitality and life from billions of people and the biosphere itself into one massive machine. Call that machine whatever you like. Its nature and behavior is geared towards a single purpose, and that is the absorption of all life into itself. It is one enormous feeder, and we are its morsels. To first understand this simple truth equips us inwardly to stop this insatiable complex and our participation in it, far better than can mere political analysis. But understanding alone does not free us to act. All interactions in our universe involve an essential energy that guides the movement of every particle and determines every outcome. Sun Tzu called this energy chi. Plato saw it as a pre-existing essence behind a mask of appearances. Some people like to call it God. Regardless of its nomenclature, this source that binds our reality is like a mighty river which can either sweep us along helplessly or be utilized by us to alter reality. Every ruler understands this simple fact, even while the rest of us have been trained not to grasp it, and thereby are kept blind in a harness held by a few. Those who understand and utilize this chi are able to control the thoughts and actions of the multitudes of humanity only as long as the latter are devoid of their own access to chi. The primary means of stripping humanity of attaining this normally inherent power is by using fear and trauma-based conditioning at a very young age to cause people to habitually surrender and defer at every level to some higher external power, and thereby transfer their own particle of chi to that power. Such an unending energy transfer from the many to the few is the basis of all elite rule in our world. And yet, such a system is inherently unstable. Since following natural law, the nature of chi, as with any energy system, is to disseminate equally and be held in common, and not privately, a fact that invalidates as contrary to the natural order all individual rule, whether by kings, presidents, popes, or corporate oligarchies. We know from our own experience that the loss of chi from the many to the few is not simply unnatural and disharmonious. It is so constant and systemic that it cannot be resisted by individual effort alone, since our individuality has been conditioned to operate habitually rather than consciously. We think like we eat, automatically, and therefore without chi. For instance, when faced with political repression by the rulers, so-called rulers, our first reflex is to surrender our chi once again to them by pressuring them to give us justice through ritualized protest and petitioning or relying on their courts and government. 
We don't seem capable of shifting our attention away from the chi holders simply because we have no working experience of what our own chi actually is. And so, like any lost child, we cannot try to change our world without continually deferring to the so-called powers that be, whether that be a sympathetic judge, or a progressive politician, or even a spiritual advisor. Our imprinted slavery makes it impossible for us to collectively reclaim ourselves and our world. Of course, erasing, erasing a conditioned imprint may begin with the individual, but it is not manifested individualistically, but collectively. For collectivity is the nature of universal chi, which binds all phenomena in a mutual garment of destiny and interconnectedness. In any successful revolution, the personal awakening of individuals inexorably causes a collective ripple effect in many other hearts and minds that generates a new kind of group chi, or group mind, one that is unalterably opposed to the chi of the rulers. This new energy system is a living and working counterculture that draws energy and power away from the rulers and their system and returns it to the multitude of the people, provided the people can hold on to it as a group by retaining their own new separate identity. The very nature and purpose of our struggle today is to achieve precisely such a new energy dynamic and allow all of humanity to reclaim their natural chi and the collective liberty that it bestows. This purpose must continually guide all of our thoughts, words, and deeds. Well, how do we apply chi knowledge or chi knowledge to our present situation? The Chinese general Sun Tzu, writing thousands of years ago, had the best practical understanding of how such an awareness of the essential energy behind reality can and must be used in concrete struggles, especially in war and politics. As he said in his book, The Art of War, quote, Nothing is permanent in life except conflict and change. One either masters the chi of one's opponent or is mastered by it, unquote. If we set aside our Western philosophical bias that dualistically separates matter from spirit, we recognize that Sun Tzu is accurately describing the dance that occurs in any conflict with an adversary. For as he writes, enemies like opposites are mutually dependent on one another, being part of a greater unity and purpose. Thus enemies are defeated not by their abolition, but by their absorption into a greater whole. Unquote. In short, we can win any engagement not by outnumbering or crushing an opponent, but by redirecting his own essential energy into the outcome we desire. Redirecting. A classical example of the power of such an approach is found in our own campaign in Canada to indict church and state for genocide. That campaign consisted of a, of a few dozen of us in three cities, but it successfully forced Canada and the Catholic, Anglican, and United Churches to respond on our terms, by admitting their crime and helping to commence their own dissolution. For by acceding to a new reality, the old matrix called Christian Canada surrendered to us its chi and helped energize our agenda of disestablishing crown and church, a process that is now continuing to unfold. This new power alignment is crumbling Canada and laying the basis for a new chi arrangement that we call the Common Law Republic of Kanata. What achieves this victory were not our numbers, but our strategic position, our visible persistence, and our ability to outmaneuver and redirect the chi of the system, armed as we were, but with an undeniable truth and evidence that kept both church and state constantly fearful and on the defensive. Similarly, but even more stunning, is the other greater victory that flowed from this first one, namely the blow against the Vatican and Rome 
at our historic deposing of Pope Benedict on February 11, 2013, by our public conviction of him and other top Catholic officials for the same genocide. The successful mastering by us of a hugely more powerful opponent's chi happened because our small movement deliberately used, utilized a strategy of guerrilla warfare, which is summed up by Sun Tzu thus, quote, First, when I am few and my enemy is many, I can use the few to strike the many, because those whom I battle are restricted, being larger and more unwieldy. Their strength thereby becomes their weakness. Second, do not respond to the ground your enemy has prepared for you, but instead shape their ground. Then they have no alternative but to be led by you, as if it was their own idea. Third, hide the time of battle from an enemy, and make what he loves and defends your first objective. By aiming at and seizing what the enemy holds dear, their greater strength and plans are rendered useless, and they must stop and respond on your terms, no matter how small are your forces. Unquote. And so, in this manner, on March 17, 2008, during Palm Sunday services, two of our action groups occupied without warning the largest Catholic cathedrals in Vancouver and Toronto, making headlines across Canada with our demand that the genocidal churches be prosecuted and forced to return the remains of the Indian children they killed. We also announced that we are commencing an international court action to charge Canada with genocide. Less than a month later, the government announced for the first time an inquiry into the missing residential school children. This led directly to the official parliamentary apology just two months later, and the subsequent official admission by Ottawa that genocide did indeed occur in Canada. By striking unexpectedly at the Achilles' heel of the main instigator of genocide, behind its own lines, amidst its most sacred ritual, we not only shocked and frightened the enemy, but created the field of battle and forced our opponent in its fear to respond on our terms. We defined the field of battle. Since then, no one in Canada has dared any more to deny that children were killed in the residential schools and that it was indeed genocide. A few of us thereby reshaped the national narrative, or in Sun Tzu's words, we mastered the chi of an enormous adversary and redirected it on our terms. Similarly, the shockwave that deposed Pope Benedict's has continued to spread, forcing four other resignations by top Vatican officers named in our common law court indictment, and compelling an enormous and desperate public relations effort by the present Pope Francis to shore up Rome's collapsing credibility. What is this but living proof of the ability of a small force to absorb the chi of the biggest and oldest enemy imaginable, the Vatican Incorporated? Well, compare these stunning victories by a handful of people with the negligible results of many thousands of protesters standing impotently outside government buildings and waving placards, and thereby surrendering their collective she once again to their adversary. For the unstated message of any group of protesters to some external power is this. We acknowledge your authority. You have the power, not us. All we ask is that you change things for us. Well, that's not change on the terms of the people, but accommodation to elite rule, regardless of the outcome. This impotence called protest, like voting or going through the courts, is in truth the clearest example of the energy-sucking nature of the machine that relies on such controlled opposition to feed its own chi. In reality, no such diminishing of people's own chi is ever required, for the, the ability of any size group to capture the chi of the government in any corporate regime has been proven in practice by us and others. 
In energetic terms, this constitutes a reclaiming of power in order to rebalance chi, whose nature is to disseminate and to be shared equally. This approach is the only sure means of changing the nature of power itself and bringing down tyranny permanently and not simply changing hats on the heads of different oppressors. And yet, as we noted, understanding this truth doesn't automatically make it happen for the simple fact that we are a very part of what it is we oppose. The symbiotic nature of chi. It's often remarked, usually as a justification for not getting involved in a radical movement, that all revolutions just end up replacing one tyrant with another. Well, from a distance, history seems to bear this out. The moments where masses of people shake off their chains and govern themselves directly and consciously seem to be episodic and brief. Most of the time, the masses appear to be like a passive herd led around by some elite or another. But this appearance is in fact illusory. People's acquiescence to a regime is not the same thing as them actively supporting it. People will act to change things only when they can see and feel that there exists a working alternative to the status quo. That is, only when they are able to recognize and establish their own new collective chi. But why does this not seem to happen very often? What is the bulwark that holds people back besides the obvious ones of fear and intimidation? These questions can only be answered in practice by knowing first the symbiotic and interdependent nature of all power and its chi. Just as darkness and light depend on one another and are aspects of the same phenomena, so too are opponents in any war or political change. Even the biblical war in heaven was fought between two types of angels, Lucifer, in fact, meaning being of light. Any struggle is ultimately a dance between the same entity wearing different masks. Just as chi, like water, always seeks the lowest and most common ground, so does any conflict. Conscious or not, both sides search for a new symbiosis by which both can survive and prosper. For this reason, it's impossible for any group of citizens to establish a new society within the framework and institutions of the old regime, since all of their thoughts and hopes are conditioned by it. As Frederick Engels observed so accurately following the aborted European insurrection of 1848, men always begin revolutions with their eyes fixed on the past. And the Italian rebel Giuseppe Garibaldi, who briefly overturned the papacy in 1870, wrote, one cannot secure the support of the people by calling for an overthrow of society, but instead by assuring them that their security will be preserved by the changes we envision. Unquote. Well, not surprisingly, such pragmatic, backward-looking approaches of power-seeking rebels created no new society, and in fact ended up duplicating the regimes they fought. Nineteenth-century European radicals had not read Sun Tzu, nor, for that matter, have most of today's so-called rebels. To establish a new collective identity and chi, we must not resist or combat the old regime, but absorb its own chi. Absorb it, as we did in Canada and at the Vatican. And yet, in practice, old habits of thought and deference prevent even the best of us from doing so consistently on our own terms. I continually experience this within all of the groups I work with. While holding to the vision of a new independent republic based on the common law, our best people will still insist on going into the lawless crown or de facto courts to remedy the latest injustice being done against them or others. They cannot simply turn away from the old regime. Their psychological and energetic dependence on what is familiar runs far deeper within them than they understand, because one's position within the collective symbiosis is largely invisible to the untrained mind. We can't see it. 
In short, we're all part of a bigger and hidden group mind, the Bible calls it our angel, that can only be nullified by another collective mind. What this means in practice is that regardless of anyone's degree of personal consciousness, everyone seems to be awaiting in trepidation for something or someone else to make the final break and bring in a new regime. Until then, they accommodate and worry about how to protect themselves and others from the present system. It's therefore hardly surprising that our membership within the Republic and common law movement has remained largely a passive and a waiting one, with people's eyes, feet, and every aspect of their life mired in the past, waiting for somebody else's leadership. The only remedy for this immobility is provided collectively through the creation of a new group identity, into which we can draw people out of the status quo. And by that moment, when a critical mass is reached, and not only consciousness, but the capacity to act differently emerges among many people. This emergence is always unpredictable, but when it does occur, a huge shift across society happens almost overnight, as history amply demonstrates. And then the new chi arrangement can become an actuality. In many ways, all that we do today is a preparation for the opportunities created by that moment in time, that upcoming window of action, when a new and free society can come into being from the ground up. And to quote Sun Tzu again, Operations must always be geared to the rapid seizure and exploitation of the key moment of opportunity created in battle, which can never be predicted. The prime purpose of operational commanders is to recognize and act decisively upon such fleeting moments. Unquote. The operational commanders, in our case, are the on-the-ground local community organizers who jo whose job it is is to build the movement by empowering wider numbers with the idea and reality that they can govern themselves according to a new and higher law, completely separate from the existing institutions. How to do it? Well, in that regard, the convening of local people's assemblies is an expression of this long struggle to establish new collective she, because it puts flesh on the idea that fundamental change lies only in our own hands. For as John Adams said in 1791, the revolution may have been affected first in the hearts and minds of the people, but it took shape in our constitutional conventions, where the people learned how to hold and will power for themselves. Well, our course of action is clear if the words of John Adams are to become part of our very thought and fiber. We must gather in this united vision into permanent alternative assemblies, where we covenant to establish a new form of law and government. But then the real battle will begin. For let's be clear that by creating such a new authority alongside the old one, by drawing the chi of the old regime into our sphere, we are entering into a state of permanent civil war, both politically and spiritually. We are drawing a line and separating ourselves unalterably from the past by actively disestablishing the thing called Canada and Crown Law, or any corporate regime anywhere in the world that poses as government. The firmer our resolve and the more people we draw into our new common law, public, and arrangement, the more peaceful will be this transition. We can only undertake this monumental step collectively through a new le legal and political framework embodied in the people's assemblies. For as legislative bodies, these new assemblies can establish legally the common law courts, sheriff groups, and others that will enforce the laws that are the basis of our new society. The people are the source of all law, government, and sovereign authority. This foundational republican principle means that any group of people, no matter how large, who covenant together under an oath, are a legal body and can formulate and pass laws for themselves. That's why the People's Assemblies once convened and operate continually 
are the basis of the new republic, but those conventions have to operate according to this higher and alternative chi consciousness. People, especially Canadians, have to learn freedom by beginning to actually practice it and reclaiming their own lost chi autonomy. The assemblies provide a sure way for them to do so on any matter of community concern that can be discussed and resolved locally. When people feel the power of taking all matters into their own hands, and they see how impotent in practice the existing authorities are, the Republic will become real as the old regime crumbles. Now, in conclusion, we began by observing how the present global tyranny is an energy-sucking parasite whose ultimate consequence will be the eradication of life as we know it on Mother Earth. Our purpose of shattering that entity and restoring natural law and life to our world cannot be achieved without recognizing and winning back the essential energy that is drained from us every day through our participation in this global machinery of death. Our very thought and action must therefore be geared towards regaining this chi energy by establishing new courts, assemblies, and communities utterly separate from the old institutions to allow people to leave them once and for all. But first they must leave them in their own minds and hearts. Those of you listeners who will be more than hearers of the word, but doers as well, are like a sharp point of a spear, constantly posed for battle. You will create the first wedge through which many others will follow, provided that you remain sharp, clear, and consistent. Because you will form the blueprint of a new society, what you do today and tomorrow is of sacred importance for the future of our people. If you waver or backslide, there will be no such future. For to quote the book, of Psalms number 149, which was cited at the trial of King Charles by the English Parliament in 1649, that established the first common law republic. The book of Psalms wrote, and inspires all of us, with these words, For you have been set apart to bind the kings of the earth, and bring to judgment the nobles and the wealthy, and to bring to nothing their pride and their power. This is the task given to the righteous remnant, so that all may know the truth and stand within the justice of God. This is Kevin Annett. I thank you. Hello, everyone. This is Kevin Annett. I'm reading to you today from the book, Here We Stand, Summoning God's People in a Time of Judgment, from the section called Table Talk, which are some small 10, 15-minute reflections based on the Gospels, but also my own spiritual reflections. First is called, What is this thing called the Jubilee? or doing more than proclaiming, and it's based on the Gospel of Luke chapter 4, 14-21. Well, I was four years old when I first helped myself to the bread out of the baker's truck. My mother, always hawk-eyed when it came to yours truly, spotted my deed and confronted me as I calmly sat munching my prize on the sidewalk near our home. I was hungry, I replied in my infant voice when Mum asked me why I had taken the bread out of the truck. I didn't understand why something so obvious needed an explanation, nor did I savvy her attempt to explain the concept of money to me. My mother perhaps blamed this early formative moment for my later predilection to give away anything in our house that wasn't nailed down to people who needed them more than we did. Cutlery, food, toys, even mum's favorite fondue set ended up in the hands of the local needy folks. Mum started locking up everything. And just imagine, back then I hadn't even started reading the Bible. My egalitarian streak only intensified when I had scripture revealed to me in Sunday school. Well, there it was, in black and white. God gave creation to all of us. No mention of cash or debt consolidation loans in Eden. And even better, not much later in the biblical timeline, 
The wandering chosen ones were told by Jehovah that every fifty years they were to pull a Kevin on it and give away what they had to the needy. Land was to be returned to the original owners, all debts were to be cancelled, and all the prisoners set free. God called that the Jubilee year. Well, like all good ideas, it was never put into practice. Instead, the tribal Hebrews demanded a king for themselves, and war chariots, and other weapons of mass destruction to smash those no-good Canaanites into the ground. And guess what? For some reason, the new big-shot kingly rulers conveniently forgot about the egalitarian jubilee laws given to them by God. Gee, now I wonder why they did that. But don't despair, people. A little while later, in a one-camel dump called Nazareth, along came a local yokel named Yeshua ben Yosef, whom the Greeks ended up calling Jesus. He had the cheekiness to stand up uninvited in the local synagogue one morning and announce, Well, sorry folks, but I'm here to bring in the Jubilee. Not in fifty years, but now. Right here. So say farewell to debts and prisons and land grabs and rich and poor. That's what Jesus announced. That's all gone, he said. We're living under a new regime, and it's called the Kingdom of Heaven. Or in Jesus' own Aramaic tongue, that meant the realm of eternity. And with that, according to the Bible, Jesus' neighbors proceeded to try to lynch him. But that had to wait a few more years to finally succeed. Meanwhile, Jesus wandered around the land trying to show folks in practice what the Jubilee meant, and that it was suddenly present right there among them. But when he went further and tried getting rid of the biggest obstacle to God's revolution, that money-soaked and militarized temple in Jerusalem, well, you know what happened next. And the same fate of crucifixion has befallen all the other poor people whenever they've tried reclaiming the world for themselves. Well, thinking back on my young self eating freely and unafraid from the earth's bounty and sharing what I had with others, I'm struck by how inborn is the jubilee spirit within all of us. We're naturally inclined to use the abundance that is given to us by God and share what there is according to what others need, not what the market needs or the rich need. The world was made that way. It was placed in common without barriers, and society would operate that way if it reflected the mind of God. All things would be held in common the way all nature is. But since the world doesn't operate that way, but rather is ruled and torn by the satanic attributes of property, greed, and class division, and the war that must follow on that, the Jubilee Reminder steps forward to get all of us back on track, even if we don't want to be. Once upon a time, humanity moved according to the Earth's rhythms. We understood innately that our society, like nature itself, has to rest and lie fallow every few years to replenish. Inequality and oppression have to step back and allow natural justice to take hold again. The Jubilee Laws wipe the slate clean so that humanity can recover and survive. But we've fallen from that simple awareness. Nothing in our society, it seems, can be overturned or renewed anymore. And so a blast of change has to clear away all the old barriers. That's indeed the very meaning of the word Jubilee. It comes from the Hebrew word Yobel, which means a trumpet blast, the kind that announces the dawn of a new age. In the Old Testament book of Leviticus, the people are instructed to, quote, Hallow the fiftieth year, and proclaim liberty in the land to all the inhabitants. It shall be a jubilee unto you. Unquote. Well, that very saying is inscribed in the American Liberty Bell in Philadelphia, and it served as the basis of a true republic under God, as established by the United States of America. 
a simple fact that heaven ordains and trumpets justice and equality for all people every 50 years. Well, Thomas Jefferson went even further than that, and he said to survive, the American Republic needed a revolution every 25 years, in other words, in each new generation of its citizens. The Republic had to renew itself constantly to survive. The divine plan is for all people to return to a level and equal footing with one another on a routine basis. But of course, the wealthy and the powerful and every ruling elite desires and works for exactly the opposite, and consider God's equality impractical and subversive and communistic. Nevertheless, the truth is proclaimed, but it has to move from thin words to thick action in order to be real. If Jesus' presence among us means anything, it requires that we embody the Jubilee laws through a new visible arrangement, a new covenant, that Christianity is wrongly reduced to a religious ritual rather than elevate to a social reality. Jesus literally did set the captives free, return land to landless peasants, and cancel the debts of anyone who joined his movement. Like any guerrilla leader, Jesus established a liberated zone, and thereby overturned the status quo. That's why he was judicially murdered, and not because he declared himself to be a divine being. In the Roman world of his time, crucifixion was reserved for political insurrectionists and armed rebels, not for religious heretics. Today we find the same drama played itself out wherever we try to make Christ's way a reality in our world. The Jubilee vision is a keg of dynamite being deliberately contained within religion. But I know, from having tried to make it real, that when we unleash that dynamite and actually sit the poor alongside the rich and abolish the differences between all of us, the full weight of oppression descends on us just like it did on Jesus. Well, Thomas Paine said, tyranny like hell is not easily conquered. But in the Jubilee vision, we are assured that injustice is a human creation, not a divine one, and that human society, like nature, must recover its vitality and equality if it is to reflect the mind of heaven and endure. That was the essence of Jesus' message and mission. The Jubilee laws are as necessary, as revolutionary, and as much of a threat to the status quo today as they were 2,000 years ago, especially to bankers, bishops, and heads of state. And so the vision and the purpose remain, and begin with something as simple as sharing out the world's wealth with those who have none. For that is our challenge today and tomorrow. Will we do more than proclaim liberty, but enact it among ourselves as the equal and free-born men and women that we are? And the second table talk is entitled, Those Who Know Do, Those Who Don't Teach. Living the Higher Law, based on the Gospel of John, chapter 14, 12 to 19. It was an unexpected revelation, like all of them are, and it happened in a dirt-covered shack on the Mexican-Guatemalan border. For there, among a tribe of starving families, and for the only time in my life, I met a people who lived in the heart and mind of God. The fact that they were Mayan Indians on the run from napalm and death squads didn't account for the special light that shone from them. Whatever it is that allows a people to retain their own soul and capacity to do right must have predated their sufferings. Their power felt very old. And with the wisdom of an ancient forest, that strength spoke to me in a twofold way, in a meal and in a speech by one of the Mayan elders. Before anything was said, we were fed, as was the Mayan custom. The five of us fat white people were given the best food in their destitute refugee camp, 
tortillas, beans, and a small pile of scrambled eggs from the few chickens they still had left. We, the rich North Americanos, were to take the food that should have gone to those thin and sickly children who peered in at us with guileless eyes and curious demeanor. A hundred of these children were dying every month from starvation and dysentery, but we were given the best food in the camp that should have gone to them. And in that moment we saw ourselves for who we were, and the unavoidable truth shattered us. Thus were our lives overturned in an instant, laying us bare for what came next. He was a thin and aging man, a former peasant who served as temporary leader of the 2,500 people in the camp. He never said his name, which seemed unimportant, nor did he have a word in his Quiche Indian language for leader or spokesman, for they had no social hierarchy among themselves. Instead, they had only each other. And he said, Our best people are always the poorest ones among us because they spend their days serving others. No elder is ever above his people. The ones who carry a title and who think only of themselves have all gone away from us. We know that if we do not serve each other until our last breath, we will have no future as a people. Those were his words. But one of my pale colleagues, a young seminarian who had turned up her nose at the meal we had been offered, asked the man whether he was afraid of another attack from the Guatemalan army across the river. The question seemed to confuse him. But through the translator, he finally answered, the soldiers cannot harm us because they can only hurt our bodies. Our real enemy is Zabalba, the crater and the destroyer who seeks out human hearts to devour. He tests each one of us to see who can be eaten and who stands in the presence of Hunabku, the only source whose heart is our heart and who cannot be destroyed. Unquote. Well, my colleague didn't seem satisfied and she went away proverbially empty. But as for me, basking in the pure and undivided devotion of a poor man to his people and his gods, it felt like I'd finally come home. And the prophet Jeremiah wrote, For see, the days are coming when I will make a new law with my people. I will put my law into their hearts, so that each of them will know me inwardly. And they will no longer teach one another, saying, Know the Lord thy God. For they will all know me, from the least of them to the greatest and they will be my own people, and I will be their one God. Well, the prophet Jeremiah, who passed on this message, might have been sitting with us that day in the Nuanva and Speranza refugee camp, inscribing the words of God spoken from the mouth of a poor Kiche peasant. For the same news was present. The divine truth is made flesh now and needs no mediator or interpreter. No priest, no pope, no church, nothing but God present in each of us. It's expressed itself in these people who do not teach or learn God's law, for they are that law. They are the kingdom of heaven, spread out on the earth as those like Jesus, serving with an absolute love and devotion to each other. The Kiche Mayans were indeed not simply followers, but intimate friends of God. Jesus put it another way when he said, My only command is that you love each other, for greater love has no one that he give himself for his friends. And I call you my friends now, for you aren't my servants any longer. A servant does not know his master, but as my friends you know all that I have been given by my Father. For you are chosen to go out into the world and bring forth much fruit. Well, after I returned to Canada from the refugee camp a week later, it felt like I had left my home to return to the land of the dead and the dying. For nowhere in the thirty years since my encounter with the Quiche have I met another genuine people in God, a whole community stripped of everything and yet bursting with love and service. 
I've not met people who would willingly die for each other, except among the Quiche. For the pale ghost people who I have tried to serve with some of the Quiche's own spirit are consumed with words and things and teachings to each other that come from nothing and return to nothing. If there's one continual theme in the Bible, is that it is that of the holy remnant, the ones who have been set apart to reflect God's law and purpose in the midst of a fallen human social order. Indeed, Christ and his few followers were one such remnant. According to Jesus' own words, he came not to redeem all of humanity. That's what the church teaches, but it's not accurate. He came not to redeem all of humanity, but rather to call out and separate the chosen remnant from a condemned mankind. The revolutionary biblical act has always been to refine that remnant and allow it to be a counterpole away from the satanic world spirit and its principalities and powers. Whenever we encounter such a remnant of the world, few of us are capable of recognizing them for who they are, unless we are a part of that same fragment of heaven, however unconsciously. Some hidden seed in our true heart then responds, knowing itself to be an orphan in the world and seeking its home in the heart and mind of God as a salmon seeks its spawning ground. Indeed, our estrangement for the world is the first spiritual step towards entering a new kingdom of heaven, or in Jesus' words in Aramaic, the realm of eternity. I had such an encounter 30 years ago in a desolate corner of the world, among a people called out from the world's corruption. Something of the Kiche has always remained in me, prompting my own good seed to grow and pull me increasingly out of this world in its, and its unchanging and irredeemable death and corruption. The Bible calls such a step the New Covenant, whose law and authority supersedes all human laws, governments, and religions. The question for those of us who have had our inner eyes open to this covenant is whether we shall live under its new jurisdiction or languish as prisoners under human law. Our answer is a deeply spiritual and personal one, but it is also just as deeply political, and it can only be demonstrated in practice in the doing, as my Kiche friend showed me one day in April of 1987, at the end of one world and the beginning of another. <laughs>